1: Hi, this is Ron Mars of Green Lantern and Silver Surfer and Marvel vs. DC so-called fame, and you're listening to The Marvelous with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson.
2: Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick.
0: I'm Eddie Wilson.
2: And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, and I love saying that every single time I get to. Very we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias.
0: I don't, but he does. Go ahead.
2: First off, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski, a follow ski, a jet ski, or whatever ski. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at
0: The Marvelists. You
2: can follow us individually on social media. Myself on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. On Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick and for God knows what reason, I'm on TikTok. I guess to dance or some
0: stupid thing. Like that but Kid Rock song, God Only Knows, right? Pretty much. But
2: mm. I'm on TikTok at Peter Melnick, but better. And that's because someone took the Peter Melnick name, and they're not even used. Why would you do that?
0: Mm. But
2: there is only one place in the whole wide world, the whole worldwide interwebs, that you can find Eddie Wilson. And that is on Instagram. And that is at
0: Eddie9193.
2: I don't know why Got on my tiptoes as I said that one. It helped. It helped with the vocals. Yes. But anyway, there's also a wide variety of streaming platforms that you can listen to the show on for all iOS and Android devices. And those include SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, among many others. Those places that you can wrangle an RSS feed. Wrangle it with your hands. Oh, no, that's wrangling with your hands. But I digress. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share. And remember, when you're on iTunes, keep it five stars because Eddie, no stars and below, is like the ice cream machine at McDonald's. It just don't work. Just like that joke, every single time.
0: Every single time. Oh, you have no idea. But yes, I do.
2: (laughs) Eddie, on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined alongside. Well, technically, because you know he's on another part of the state. We're on this part of the state. There's quarantining. I'm over here.
0: Walking, walking and talking and, and breathing for, first and foremost.
2: You might be the first moving guest we've had. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with comic book writer Ron Mars. Ron, good evening. Hey,
1: guys. I, you know, I like to be a moving target, so we're, we're doing this ambulatory.
0: As long as it works. And uh, the other noise you hear is the, uh, the, the gentle breeze that's accompanying your walk, and that's great.
1: The gentle breeze. This is, this is my socially distanced walk. This is Excellent. this is what passes for exercise uh, in the in the era of a gym. You can't go to a gym.
0: Even better, did. you don't need a mask too. That's great.
1: Uh, it's true. I, uh, I I was just at the post office, in fact, and there was a guy in front of me in line without a mask. And I'm like, what you know,
2: what what century are you from? Put your mask on. <laughs> well, as of this recording on uh, May twenty eighth, had to make sure of that. Yes. It's it's kind of an uh, interesting thing because they just announced today in New York State, you know, all businesses, they have to have the masks on. And, yeah. So, I don't know where I was going with that tangent, but
0: here we are. Well, it's all part of what we have to deal with now as the quote-unquote new normal, but, you know.
2: That's fine, you know, whatever. Whatever you got to do. You know, keep your brother safe. And I'm not talking about Hulk Hogan-style brother, but I digress. And with this, a lot of us at home are being able to experience a lot of comic books. And just, Ron, yourself, what are you reading right now? Um, you know, honestly, I'm not,
1: I'm not reading that much because my my schedule is so packed that I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time. I mean, it feels like, yes, reading comic books should be part of my job, but I feel like I'm not working if I'm sitting at my desk reading a comic book. So, so mostly what I'm going through is, you know, the stack of stuff that I picked up at the store four or five months ago, um, which is just a lot of various and sundry odds and ends. Um, although the uh, the lovely delivery man did just bring me the Batman black and white omnibus today, which is, this, is of a size that so you could kill a grown man with it. So um, though I've mo- read most of that stuff, I'll probably be knocking off a few black and white stories every
2: night. Now, what is the name of your comic shop that you frequent? Because a lot of shops right now are, as of this recording, starting to come, starting to reopen, and a lot of us want to, you know, patronize, or not patronize, but, you know, become patrons of these stores and help out in any way they can. So who are you going with, and do they offer the ability to
1: purchase um, online? My, uh, my local is called uh, Excellent Adventures which is in Boston spa, uh, near Saratoga, uh, New York. And, uh, the other one I can go to is earth world in Albany, which is a, it's a much bigger store. Um, and earth world been doing curbside through most of this whole affair. So, you know, I think everybody's kind of finding their way little by little now that there's new books actually getting into the stores. Um, Hopefully, that 's kind of a lifeline for a lot of these local shops to uh, keep the doors open
2: yeah myself i 've been like this weekend is going to be a three shop kind of week and it 's like little odds and ends things that it 's not really new books but you know I'm trying to help out any way I can with a lot of these places and you know I know everyone's yeah, only- doing the same thing
1: yeah, I think that you know the comics community is very much a community, and I think one of the one of the real appeals to a local comic shop is that sense of community that the customers get when they're going in on Wednesday or or now Tuesday if they're going to go in for new books. Um people people like that social interaction it's one of the real uh the real benefits that we have uh because we we put new stuff out every week. Um hopefully that continues. Uh I know uh there were some concerns that maybe maybe having no new books in the stores for a couple months would lead people to online or ordering from different online sources, downloading digitally. Um, But I think there's something that's very vital about that in-store experience for comics.
2: I know for uh, myself, I've I've been trying to do it as many ways as possible. I do digital, I do physical, uh, you know, any way to read a comic, I try my damnedest to partake. And it's funny because there's a lot of creators out there with stuff coming out sometimes even the point where you know they have to cancel the book like marvel's doing it a lot lately with certain series where the last two to three issues will be digital only and it's kind of a bummer but it was bound to happen eventually for certain books you know
1: sure well i mean obviously we
2: we as an industry kind
1: of work on an antiquated model um, we're selling what are essentially books as periodicals once a month and that that 20 page package of a comic is not what um probably a majority of the public would want they don't want to have to go to the store once a month to get the latest chapter they want the whole thing at once we're we're a binge culture in how we watch tv um i think comics are headed in the direction of being not really appreciably different um Comics uh, are going to go more towards OGNs, um, more toward getting the whole
0: story at once,
1: which is probably a natural evolution um, because we're not really a newsstand product anymore.
0: Right. Well, in a case like me, it's amassing the comic books physically and then eventually getting to them to read. I just recently, Ron, read All the Cosmic Powers 1 through 6 to say, not to say the least of, you know, the Silver Surfer, Dangerous Artifacts, the, the Cosmic Powers Unlimited, Silver Surfer, and the shiny ones, of course, number 75 and 100.
1: Oh, the shiny ones are great. Yeah. Uh, the shiny ones, I, I love to sign the shiny ones, as long as Ron Lim hasn't beaten me to, <laughs> like, the, the, the one shiny spot on Surfer 75 where I can actually sign.
0: Yeah, right on the surfboard underneath, and that's where I have it. That,
1: that's the prime spot. Now, if somebody has has met Ron Lim before that, before me, uh, you know, I get I get second fiddle. I get you know I get to sign on somebody's face. Use <laughs> a mustache. Ooh, um, I, yeah, I should probably I should probably charge for personalization by you know putting mustaches on everybody on that cover.
0: The Silver surfer stash. Look at that.
2: One of my uh, favorite comic uh, signatures I have is from uh, Tom King, and it 's the Batman Elmer Fudd comic from a couple years back, and you see batman 's Shadow, and every single time uh, Tom has signed this to people, he 'll draw like a little sad face on Batman or like a little angry face, but <laughs> it 's cool to see stuff like that because there's like that little personal touch that each creator has on there, you know so I, I think a silver stash would actually be really good. <laughs>
1: Well, that's the that's the deep dark secret of all writers is that we wish we could draw. So, oh. you know, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: we wish we could we wish we could do that magic trick of making something appear out of
2: nothing. And on the topic of Tom um, real quick, with uh, that signature, I have uh, another one of uh, Batman and Catwoman, and he drew a little stick figure of Batman pushing the two of them together and goes, "Get a room, you two. <laughs> I, I think it, it's funny because there's so many, you know things that you could do, especially just with the uniqueness of signatures. Like When you had your first signature, by the way, what was that feeling like you know, to put your um, name on someone's book? I can actually remember it. I was at a
1: tiny little show um, in either, in either southeastern New York State or, or perhaps uh, northern New Jersey. It was a little high school show, um, and it was the first, first show I'd ever done and um, somebody brought me one of my books to sign because I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know enough to like, bring my own books to sell. Uh, that was not a thing that I even realized you were supposed to do. So I'm just sitting there at a table waiting for somebody to come up to me, and, and sure enough, people bought my book and brought it up to me and asked me to sign it, and then, I'm, and then I thought to myself, well, I, 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 don't, I don't have a signature. What am I supposed to do here? Uh, and so I just... I just did like a quick hieroglyph, basically, which ended up being what my autograph looks like now, which is, of course, different than, um, different than my signature, which I put on checks and stuff like that, because somebody mentioned to me, yeah, make sure your autograph is not your signature, because that way, that way lies fraud.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that show, um, was it maybe a few years ago? Because I remember going to a high school small show in uh, Hawthorne, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It was, um, and and for what kind of show it was, it was amazing because it was this, you know it was in a high school gym, yeah. put on by the high school uh, comic book club, and because it was in that area, they had an amazing guest list. It was like you know Denny O'Neill and Walt Simonson, um, you know, half of the people that worked on X Men. Uh, it was, it was a, a pretty high powered show, but. It was the kind of thing that nobody even really knew about because yeah. just the, you know it's just these high school kids.
0: If it's the same thing again that I think I remember I think that's where I met Bob Wyachek as well. And I think there were representatives or students, or if you wanted of the to send the Justice League. That's exactly right, the Joe Kubert School of Art.
1: Um yeah, because that's you know, that's really a nest of all the guys who moved to New York to New York City in the seventies to work in comics. Mm-hmm. You know, Simonson and Starlin and Wyatt and all of those guys um, eventually everybody moved out of the city to the suburbs or even a little further upstate but um, because all of those guys were in, in the general vicinity that show got an amazing guest list every year
2: that's wild to see because I know there's like certain comic shops in that area too and they always have like the same core group of people but it's always a great lineup, like you said, and it's kind of cool to be able to see that, be able to experience, like especially, you know, meeting like living legends in the field that easily in your backyard.
1: Well, it's again, it's that it's that sense of community that comics engenders. It's uh, you know your local pros who are um, who are the probably the customers of the shop too, right? I mean that's where we. That's where we all go to get our stuff. I mean, the, the stores up here, um, you know, it's not a big, it's not unusual for me to show up and do a signing because they're down the road. Um, I'm happy to go in and do a signing, uh, and you know, the other, the other pros that are around. I mean, within an hour or so, we've got Jim Starlin and Terry Austin and Barry Windsor Smith, Joe Staten, uh, Paul Harding, the sculptor. There's just a bunch of people. Um, and up and down the Hudson River Valley, uh, who have done this for a living for a bunch of years.
2: You mentioned Paul Harding, by the way. Have you been seeing his recent uh, posts on, I think, Twitter and Instagram of the Marvel like in the seventies that he's working on? Those things are gorgeous. Um, I have, and I was actually
1: at Paul's house on Saturday, so I had to, you know, I had to hear all about it.
2: Oh, well, dude, that's Silver uh, Surfer. Yeah, not the, silver surfer. the stuff Warlock that he's is doing amazing. is
1: great. Um, and now Paul is—you know—Paul is one of my best friends, so I am—I uh, am very hesitant to heap praise upon him. But those—those those figures are just amazing. Uh, he's really uh, captured them in ZBrush uh, in the way that, really, I don't—I don't know that anyone else could.
2: Well, when I saw that Incredible Hulk he made, the Hulk looks just like a Sabu uh, illustration come to life. It's incredible.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's, I don't know why sort of working in 3d working in ZBrush, can give you that, um, you know, like in that case, that Sal Busema feel, I mean, everybody yeah. who looked at that, that knows exactly whose Hulk that is. Um, but somehow Paul can get that quality into, into the pieces. Um, and I know he's going to, he's going to keep doing them. It's just, uh, and thank God. I mean, I, it's, a pleasure for me to wake up and look at that stuff just like it's a pleasure to look at the kind of the little pencil drawings that Mike mignola is doing every day um, yeah it's, i think I think that kind of stuff that's going on to social media is is in some part keeping us all sane because we've got something to look forward to every day.
2: and one of the uh, things that when I was looking through paul's uh, the 3D modeling and whatnot. The one that really got a kick out of me was the Adam Warlock, to the point where he's ha- you know, got the little soul gem glowing on there. It's absolutely gorgeous-looking stuff. And it got me thinking, I'm going through a Marvel Cosmic read-slash-read-through, or re or whatever, whatever, going through. Richards! But, you stop that. But I'm on uh, the Infinity War era. You know, I'm, re- I'm visiting some of Starlin's stuff for the first time, revisiting previous stuff. And one of the things that I've been visiting for the first time ever is your run on Silver Surfer. And to follow up Starlin and to follow it up with the same quality is an impressive feat. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the line, but because I love the character, and you managed to find a way to nail that voice. Well,
1: uh, first, thanks. That's very kind, and I appreciate it. Um, Second, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was... (laughs) I was literally learning on the job as I was doing the job. Um, Silver Surfer was my first gig in comics ever. Silver Surfer was the first script I had ever written ever. Um, and obviously, it all came about because of Jim Starlin and Jim showing me the ropes. And and certainly, my my surfer is very much patterned after Jim's surfer. Um, I you know I learned at the feet of the master and. Tried to just tried to not screw it up when they gave me the chance to take it over.
2: And you know, I've been reading it because you you mentioned on uh, Twitter like a week or so ago that they're re releasing one of the runs of Silver Surfer through the Epic Collection. And I believe it's gonna is it completing your run? No, I think think that goes up three,
1: five, something like that. There's still, I, I, I ended up writing just past issue 100, so there's still a, a bit more for them to collect, hopefully. And I think there are probably a few stray, stray issues that aren't, that aren't in a collection somewhere. I think, but, Ron, you may have uh, to
0: back up a second and start with that beginning of that answer again. We had some yeah, bad wind. I was going to ask.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, if, if, as we go, if there's anything that uh, seems, uh, yeah. seems a little too windy, let me know. Um, so uh, give me the question
2: again. Uh, So like, is this, are those epic books, is that wrapping up your run on Silver Surfer, or is there more to be reprinted?
1: I think there's another year or maybe year and a half, two years of Surfer stuff that hasn't been reprinted yet, uh, of of my Surfer stuff at least, because I went up through just after issue 100. So there's there's another chunk, but obviously a lot of the um, Infinity War, Infinity Gauntlet uh, crossovers and tie-ins and all that, uh, are are now get, are either in print or getting back into print. Um, it's it's just such a shock that you know when you when you have two movies that make billions of dollars uh, around based around those events, somehow they, Marvel finds a way to get those books back into print.
2: And one of the things that I love about that run, like I said, is how you are able to follow in the footsteps of Jim Starlin and. You're, the first big event that you're involved with is the friggin' Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> so it's like, how much at the time did you know what Jim, George, and Ron were getting ready to do as you were writing your tie-in books?
1: Um, nobody knows that the thing you're working on is going to be a big deal before it ever gets released. You know, I think you know, Jim saw it as a story he was telling, and ultimately, like, like the vast majority of Jim's Marvel stuff, um, it's a Thanos story. It's a big Marvel Universe crossover, but it's ultimately a Thanos story. Um, I think the you know the movies give you that sensibility as well. But um, when I was kind of thrown into the middle of it, taking over Surfer with issue 51, because Jim was moving off to write Infinity Gauntlet, and those were, I believe those were double size issues. So a you know a six issue a six issue crossover like that turned out to be really like writing 12 issues for Jim. So he had something had to give because he was bringing the Warlock book back as well. Um, so I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into because it was all new to me. And I've said this before, but the, the, the fact that my first bunch of issues all turned out to be infinity Gauntletians uh, was the best training I could have ever had about working in a shared universe about, um, how to tell your story between other stories. Um, it was all hugely, uh, hugely formative for me in terms of, of being a comic book writer, but I didn't know it at the time because I didn't have anything else to compare it to.
2: Now, how did you get onto the uh, Silver Surfer title?
1: Well, I mean, Jim, uh, Jim and I were friends before I ever did comics.
2: Um, I copy
1: edited Jim's first prose novel for him because I was a—I um, just graduated from college, uh, and was working at a daily newspaper as a reporter. Um, so, I mean, I was a writer already. I just wasn't writing comics already. And Jim, dis- and Jim suggested to me, "Hey, did you ever think about writing comics?" And, you know, well, duh, everybody thinks about writing comics, but you know, you don't actually get that chance. Um, but in my case. You know, in terms of Jim Starlin. So he allowed me to co-write a few jobs with him, a few Surfer issues. And then when um, he decided he was going to step away from Surfer, uh, I'm sure with much arm twisting on his part, Marvel offered me uh, Marvel offered me the reins on the Surfer book. Um, and I was probably, geez, I don't know, 23, 24 years old and, you know, hadn't written any small press stuff or, you know, I, I got to, I, I, you know, I like to say that I, you know, my, my debut was basically like playing for the Yankees. I got to, I got to start, uh, writing a monthly title at Marvel, um, which I know makes me incredibly fortunate and I am incredibly grateful, uh, every day for the opportunities. Um, but it was also, it was also a time in the industry where books were selling like crazy. Um, when I took over Surfer it was selling three hundred thousand copies a month. And that was sort of a you know, that wasn't a runaway hit. It was a it was a the book that was selling really well, but it wasn't like crazy X Men numbers. So certainly a, a very different time in the industry and I was in the right time at the right place.
2: And how is that like to feel like you mentioned those numbers though, that high, that many people are reading what you're doing. Like how does that feel?
1: Um you know, it's, it's like anything else in this business is you don't get a lot of feedback. I mean, my job is basically sitting in a room by myself all day. Uh, and, you know, the people I talk to or the people that I, you know, I do podcasts with or have Skype meetings with or, you know, there's not a whole lot of, it's not like there are 300,000 people in your front yard, uh, either, you know, telling you you did a great job or, or maybe having pitchforks and torches. Um, it's a, it's a very solitary job and you don't really get a lot of feedback. I was just so excited to be doing the job and uh, so full of, of energy of just to, just to have the opportunity um, that I, you know, I didn't really give a second thought of, of, you know, what sort of pressure there was or, I mean, looking back now, I should have been terrified. I should have been absolutely terrified of the opportunity and of, of, perhaps screwing up the opportunity, but at the time, I didn't know any better, you know, 23, 24-year-old dummy, um, and um, comics were just like the next logical thing for me.
2: Would you say that the energy you felt was a cosmic power? Or cosmic? Uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and that's, and that's specifically why we, you know, why we did the Cosmic Powers miniseries, because I was so filled with cosmic energy.
0: That was a hell of a story. That those six issues too, and it really, like you mentioned, about the story being all about Thanos. Well, that's exactly what this thing is about because it's it's what he wants to do. He wants to take up the challenge with the tyrant and go through these others that get their you know their shot as being on the title on the cover as you work your way through with Terax and uh, Jack of Hearts and so on.
1: Well, that that whole Cosmic Powers series was just. I mean, the reason that came about was everything was selling crazy numbers. Like, it was such a boom time in the business, and a, and a good part of it was speculation. Um, you know, people were, people were buying cases of books that they were never going to read. Um, they just put them in the attic and figured they were going to, um, you know, put their, put their kids through school on, on selling comics in 15 years. Uh, and I guess we all found out that wasn't going to be the case. Um, now, Ron, that's but, Superman uh, number
2: 75.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, we did, you know, we did really well with, uh, we did really well with a, a lot of those books. I mean, when I like I said, when I initially took over, uh, Surfer it was selling about 300,000 copies an issue. And I think we were doing somewhere between 15 and 18 issues a year. We were doing more, we were doing more than 12 issues. Um, and you know, you get royalties on those copies. So the royalty money was amazing when I first stepped into the business. But I had guys like like Wrightson and Starlin telling me, look, this isn't this isn't the way this goes. There are there are waves and troughs. And right now we're on top of a wave. Um and it's not it's not gonna last like this. So I wasn't one of those guys who broke into into comics in the early nineties thinking, Oh, well, you know, these these large royalty checks I'm getting are just gonna last forever. <laughs> um I knew that it was that it was finite, so you know, you, you tuck the money away and uh, and you, you ride it as long as you can. So, um, cosmic powers turned out to be uh, something. I was I was actually up at the Marvel offices, and my editor came to me and said, "Hey, they want to you know they want to put something else into the schedule, uh, ASAP. Um, come up with something." And you know, like that was that was as much direction as I got. Uh, they said, you know, we want six size issues so they could charge more for it. Um, and we want to do them really fast. So that's why, um, that's why every issue is drawn by someone else. Like, there's a new art team on every issue. Yeah. Because they were basically all being drawn at the same time. Um, the initial thought was that, that Ron Lim was going to draw everything, but Ron Lim was, was frankly already drawing everything. So, um...
2: Ron only about he, to call off. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, he—I uh, mean, Ron did so much work in the '90s at Marvel. Uh, I think people actually forgot how how good he was, and just saw him as well the workhorse that we can throw anything to. Um, but the you know the cosmic power stuff came about because um, I had to figure out a way that each issue could have a some sort of story reason for having a different artist on it. So that's why it ended up being a different, quote-unquote, starring character in every issue. It just made sense to, um, to have a bunch of different artists on And then it became a question of, well, where are we going to get these artists? Uh, so it was, um, it was a, I, as I remember, it was a mad scramble to get, uh, to get those issues done. Uh, but in, in retrospect, I've, I've looked at them um, there was, a, I guess, it was the Thanos collection a few years ago, where they reprinted all that stuff, and I went, "Geez, you know, I'm not, I'm not completely embarrassed by all of this. Some of this is actually pretty decent."
0: Well, in in my case, having gotten these, and I don't know if it took me multiple times searching, but I realized, and maybe it's not the first comic to do this, that it has cosmic powers not across the top of the title, but down the side in you know, kind of like see-through letters. So that kind of threw me off, and also didn't realize it was a limited series, not indicating that on any of the covers.
2: Yeah, like, like
1: I said, it was just a, it was, let's do this thing right now. And the the weird sort of decorative framework that's on each cover was just because my editor, um, my editor had found that sort of pattern in a book that came from the printer's work because this was the era of all sorts of uh, Special additions to covers, you know, foil and holofoil and holograms, glow in the dark, any sort of any sort of collectible uh, flourishes that they could put on a cover. They did. So my editor no, no. found that pa- my editor found those patterns and said, we should do covers like this.
0: Hmm.
1: And I thought, well, that's actually kind of ugly, but OK, let's 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 figure out a way that that can happen.
0: The other thing, too, yeah. before I forget with these, is the fact, especially in the first one, I think more than any of the other issues, although in two or three other issues, it does do the same technique of of having bigger splash pages, turning the book the other direction. And I only remember seeing that limitedly, but the first one that really glares out is an issue of Fantastic Four, where the whole issue is is that way.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, we we broke some of the rules in the 90s, and perhaps perhaps not... Not wisely, so. Uh, but we did we did a few of those sideways spreads um, in those Cosmic Powers issues. I don't think I did that as a, as much in the Surfer, but it because we had a bigger page count uh, in those issues, I could blow out the visuals a little bit more in the script. And uh, I think some of it was was I called for a sideways uh, spread, and sometimes the artist just did it that way because it was kind of in vogue at the time. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, one of the things I'm lucky that I have you on the line for this. I'm going through that whole Infinity reread. Where would you say that Cosmic Powers lies in that reading order? Does it go after Infinity War, Crusade, etc.? Oh boy,
1: <laughs> um, my guess would be somewhere after, uh, probably after after Gauntlet, but maybe before War. Okay. Um, Cosmic Powers was really done to mostly be a standalone project, um, although I guess in retrospect it spawned Cosmic Powers Unlimited, and you know it spawned a couple of other different variations of uh, of the title. Um, some of which I worked on, some of which I didn't.
0: I'm just going at my Cosmic Powers Unlimited to read it again, and that's a wraparound cover, so uh, and a really good one at that. That would be where. I would have liked to have thought of getting a second copy just to be- possibly frame the uh, the cover.
1: I think that's probably the Claudio Castellini cover with Thanos and Surfer.
0: It is Thanos and Surfer, right? And uh, like I said, opposite uh, one on the front, one on the back page. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean Castellini just he was the obvious he was the obvious guy to start doing those covers because his uh, his cosmic stuff was amazing. He was very much a disciple of John Bismuth in terms of the way he drew his Surfer. And you know, I guess being being brutally honest about it is, Claudio is very meticulous, which turns into very slow. So actually, having him do interior pages, you were going to wait for him. You get a cover a little bit quicker.
2: Now, when you eventually ended up leaving, were you actually were you working on Green Lantern the same exact time you were working on Server?
1: Yeah, I think I think I was working on Green Lantern. Uh, and surfer and a book an image at the same time. Um, wow. Uh, like monthly, which, which is unheard of these days. You're, 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 you're really, you know, basically not allowed to do it anymore. Um, but I was, yeah, it, it, in those days it was, it was a little more common for you to be able to, to work both sides of the street at the same time.
2: And with that Green Lantern run, that is one of the most absolutely beloved runs. And it's, it's funny for me because, you know, I'm a graphic designer. I absolutely love Kyle Rayner, so there's a you know little connection in there for me with that. And for, how did how did you decide on that as the profession for Kyle Rayner? Well, actually,
1: my uh, my Green Lantern run really came about because of my Silver Surfer work. Because the editors at Green Lantern, the editors at DC that had Green Lantern in their office, um, were reading my Surfer stuff. So when they decided that. Uh, There was going to be a new direction for the title. Uh, I was the guy they called, Um, and I had done done a few short stories for Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, so I, you know, there was a relationship there, um, and I had done a bit of work for him, but certainly this Green Lantern was my first uh, was my first DC monthly.
2: And it's you know with the character of Green Lantern, there's just something about the connection between Surfer and Green Lantern. You know, of course, space, obviously, but it's that whole element that, you know, you're linked to these characters forever and that connection between the two, what do you see as the big similarity other than space with the two characters? Well, I guess that, you know, they, they both sort of have this
1: unlimited power really. Um, uh, and they're both uh, to great extent, they're kind of, they're kind of space opera uh, stories um, Certainly, you know the the first surfer run where he was he was stuck on Earth, and it was uh, Stanley and John Buscema doing kind of parables and and really using this alien character to examine what was going on on Earth uh, was ultimately great stuff. But it was completely different from what I did in the book, which was mostly a, which was mostly an outer space book. Um, then, of course, when I when I got Green Lantern. Um, we dismantled all the space stuff, and it and it turned into much more, uh, not exclusively, but much more of a of an earthbound book uh, because uh, we were, you know, we we're essentially doing uh, we we're essentially doing Spider-Man with a Green Lantern ring. That was that was really my vision of the character, is I wanted to do kind of that Everyman archetype that uh, that Peter Parker slash Spider-Man represents with with this you know this greatest this magic ring. This, this greatest weapon in the galaxy Um, because we, you know, obviously if the decision was made by DC editorial to, to go in a different direction with Green Lantern, to remove Hal as the lead character, to get rid of the core and the guardians and all of that stuff. um, I wanted to make sure that the character we were bringing in to replace Hal as the lead in the book was going to be as different from Hal as possible. Um, Because if, you know, if you were just going to do, you know how Jordan Light is the lead. Why did you bother to change the? Why did you bother to change the book in the first place? So, um, Kyle was very much um, my attempt to bring more of a Marvel-style character into the DC universe.
0: Eddie, well, was the decision by whoever it took to to do this with respect to changing the character? Was it that the title was not doing as well? We got to do something to really inject something that's going to bring back the the readers up to this point and not make it hell.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know ultimately most comic publishing decisions are are uh, most but not all are are made because of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Green Lantern had been selling like hotcakes, there never would have been a change. Um, but the the sales were not great. the The title was seen as sort of moribund. I think there was some regret on. DC's part that um, you know they had made Hal into um, your your father's Green Lantern basically with the mm-hmm. with the gray temples and and he just wasn't um, he wasn't seen as young and vital anymore by the by the audience. So the decision was made to um, go in a completely different direction, and certainly that decision was made by DC editorial, not me, um, because you as you know, you as the freelancer don't get to come in and, uh, and decide to, you know, to toss away a franchise lead character and replace him with your own. That, those decisions come from on high. So um, the decision to replace Hal was, was made by DC Editorial. And then the creation of Kyle was really left up to me and Daryl Banks and Kevin Dooley, the editor of the, editor of the book.
0: And then we have the yeah. cross, of course, between Green Lantern and Silver Surfer for that 1996 thing, I think, which came right before the uh, All Access crossover.
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was the era of, of Marvel and DC playing nice with each other and doing crossovers, uh, doing a number of crossovers. Uh, so because I was writing both titles, uh, that seemed to be a very obvious one to do, um, so it, you know, it got approved pretty quickly. I I went to DC and said, hey, you know, let's do Green Lantern Turfer. Uh and I don't I don't think there was even a, a great deal of discussion about it. It was just, oh well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's do that. You know, it wasn't a it wasn't a huge um, it wasn't a huge to do over. It was just like the next crossover in theory. And then while we were working on it, um, the Marvel versus DC crossover came up and, uh, that was offered to me. And obviously that's the sort of job you take without even thinking about it. Um, and so the, the very end of the green lantern silver surfer, uh, the last page or two kind of serves as a prelude to, to how, uh, Marvel vs DC came about. Um, in some ways, like if you, if you read the green lantern silver surfer book now, without any knowledge that it, it hinted at, um, Marvel versus DC, the last page or two really doesn't make any sense. Uh, the last page or two just seemed completely random. Um, but at the time, you know, everybody sort of went, Oh, you know, this is leading somewhere and then Marvel versus DC was announced. And, um, and we picked up, uh, we picked up some of that, uh, some of those story points, uh, in the first issue of Marvel versus DC.
2: Now a lot of come you know a lot of people are talking online, and again, as of this recording may twenty eighth 2020 we don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of people have been you know speculating could maybe we see a marvel d c crossover down the line because you know with the state of the comic industry right now due to covid nineteen it's you know it's affecting the comic industry like very heavily you know a lot of comic shops are closing, and this could be the it could be the big boost that could help the comic industry. Do you see a Marvel versus DC crossover happening again some almost 20, uh, almost 25 years to the point? Man, I hope so. I mean, obviously,
1: uh, obviously it would do a lot of people a lot of good, um, and I hope it happens. Uh, the real, um, to me, the real sticking point of, of uh, you know, what, what we did 25 years ago and what opportunities are there now, um, is the fact that, uh, the Marvel and DC cinematic universes and, and TV universes really have, uh, have sprung into place since then. Um, so when we were doing, um, when we were doing these crossovers, uh, these were just comic book characters. I mean, nobody, uh, nobody except the the hardcore comics fans knew who the hell Iron Man was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Iron Man was a Black Sabbath song to 98% of the public. Um, now, of course, everybody knows who Iron Man is. Uh, so it's a different landscape, and these character franchises are worth literally billions, uh, whereas they, weren't, uh, they didn't carry that kind of cachet or value Back then, we were just we were just doing comic book stories. Um, so, um, the fact that Marvel's owned by Disney, um, DC is owned by Warner Brothers, which is owned by ATT, and just means there are a lot more um, there are a lot more complications to actually pulling off something like that. Uh, but I I wholeheartedly hope it happens. Um, I hope our Marvel versus DC crossover and the amalgam books and all that stuff can actually Come back into print at some point um, because you you know unless you find them in a used bookstore you 're really not going to find that stuff uh, there's There are no new printings of it, and as far as i know there's no there's no plans for new printings
2: of it, and a lot of those marvel vs d c amalgam books, not the individual issues, but the reprints go for way, way way too much, like I think it's fifty to sixty a volume
1: yeah, I mean, I wish. I wish I had been smart enough to hang on to, you know, all of the trade paperbacks of that stuff that, you know, showed up in comp boxes at my house. Uh, but, you know, I would I would give out to kids on Halloween. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I might have I might have like one copy of Marvel versus DC for me, uh, but all the rest of it's gone, unfortunately.
0: Geez, no candy at the Mars house. I mean, that is a candy company, but for crying out loud. Uh, Ron, how many yeah, times you have just, you heard you know, that joke before? Well, not from me.
1: Come get, come get comics at my house. That's, uh,
0: Jeez, that's up. And plus, plus you just... Obviously, me... we made sure
1: you got candy, too. Yeah,
2: okay. All right. How, by the way, I know we had you on the show, I want to say, last year during Hudson Valley Comic Con.
1: Yeah, I, I, now, now that you reminded me, I remember the last time when we talked, uh, which is, you know, that's where I grew up. Hudson Valley is where I grew up, so that was really the first time I've done a Comic Con kind of in my old neighborhood.
2: Well, I think during the interview I had asked, but because, you know, the whole Stan Lee theory of everyone, something could be their first. This might be somebody's first episode listening to the show. How did Marvel versus DC come around?
1: Um, you know, we
2: talked about, you know, surfers selling
1: 300,000 copies a month. Um, after that period, in the mid-'90s, the market crashed. All that, that speculator boom... Uh, uh, you know, the speculator boom turned into a bust. It turned into a crater. And a lot of stores were hurting. A lot of stores were in uh, bad shape because they had overordered books. And suddenly all those uh, all those speculator buyers um, had disappeared. Uh, So they were they were stuck with case upon case of uh, X Men number one and X Force number one and uh, Turok Chromium covers and um, what else? Oh, Reign of the Superman stuff. So uh, a lot of stores had overextended themselves, were now stuck with a lot of product they couldn't sell, and it was a grim time in the business. Orders went down, uh, went down exponentially. So uh, Marvel and DC got together and cooked up marvel versus dc as a way to get uh to get a product into the direct market shops that would attract a lot of buyers back into the shops um and the obvious way to do that was well have the marvel and dc universes meet for meet you know meet in a large uh way beyond the you know crossovers here and there that have been done in the past um but really do a a large scale crossover, um, get that product into shops as quickly as possible to, to help keep the shops open. And, uh, that was, I mean, it was a, it was a dream come true sort of project for me, because this is, this is the kind of story that everybody, um, that everybody thinks about. Well, I'd like to tell that story when you're 10 years old. Uh, it's, it's the dream job of all dream jobs. Um, and I got a call from Mike Carlin at DC one day, and he said, uh, you can't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you, but we're gonna do a big crossover with Marvel. We want you to write, we want you to be one of two writers on it. Um, and obviously I said, you know, where do I sign up? It's, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, uh, uh, I didn't have to think about it at all. Um, and I can remember going to, uh, going to a movie that night with a buddy, and feeling like I had the coolest secret in the world, but I couldn't tell anybody. That's
0: tremendous. Yeah, no question.
1: Um, and then, and then, you know, it just it was a it was a secret project for a while. The first the first meeting that we had about Marvel versus DC was at Mark Grunewald's apartment, who was the the Marvel editor on the project. Um, we met at uh, Mark's apartment in. Uh, about 110th Street in Manhattan um, because they didn't want us meeting in the offices because they didn't want anybody from either office to, um, like they, if we met at DC, they didn't want people wondering why. Was and If we met at Marvel, they didn't want anybody wondering why Mike Carlin was in the office. Uh, so it was a, it was a very loose lips think ship kind of thing. Um, right. Where the first few meetings we had were offsite and, uh, And the whole thing had been really uh, the the big broad strokes of it had been uh, like which uh, the the universes were going to come together and the fact that the amalgam books were going to come out of it. um, That was already in place. So what our meetings were about was uh, figuring out who was going to fight who and kind of the overall mechanics of getting the characters together. I actually found out about the amalgam stuff at uh, Grunwald's apartment department because they had that part of it figured out. And when we got down the list to, uh, Dr. Strange fate being one of the books, I immediately said, I have to write that book. And, and of course they went, eh, okay, we don't care. Uh, so, I mean, I was absolutely thrilled to, to get that book and I think all of them turned out great. They all had a little bit different flavor to them. And, um, the approach that we were allowed to do, which was to sort of act like there had been a hundred issues already with these characters and that there were going to be a hundred more afterwards, um, just allowed us to, you know, have inside jokes and play with the characters and play with the, the different amalgamations of the, of the two universes. Um, I, I know we did, I think we did two sets of the amalgam books and they were all just a, just a huge amount of fun. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a rare time of, of complete detente between DC and Marvel. Um, and the editorial staffs were great uh, dealing with getting everything approved. Uh, everybody sort of knew that this was a uh, kind of serious situation for the comics business. And that um, being territorial or, or uh, being overly fluffy about what we could do and what we couldn't do um, was just not going to be allowed
2: This is John Sherburn, producer for The Marvelous and I want to say thank you for checking out part one of two with Ron Morris
0: Come back Thursday for the other part Excelsior